0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast.
1: Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 59 of the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome. And today, we are talking about a topic I'm really excited for. I had tons of fun looking up this one, because today we are talking about bats. Yes, with this episode,
0: we have, we, have, we have now done the two best groups of mammals.
1: Yes, no, yeah, I'd agree with that. We, this is going to be a ton of fun. So, first and foremost, this episode was requested by Samuel on Facebook. So, thank you. Thanks, Samuel. Good suggestion. Bats, everyone, are super duper cool. First off, one of the reasons I'm excited for this is way back at the beginning of the podcast, we did an episode on the evolution of of flight. Episode six. And we briefly mentioned bats in there. I actually went and re-listened to it to remind myself. Very briefly. Very briefly. (laughs) And we said our classic line of, man, we could do a whole episode on this. Well, here it is. Hey, there you go. We were right. And I believe, I mean, you could kind of argue with Ediacaran Biota, but that one had been requested, so that was different. But I believe this is really the first time we've actually really gone back to do one that huh. we've that
0: we said. we explicitly said that about. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know if that's true. I'm Our, our diehard listeners, I'm sure. Right.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. Go but listen to every episode. This is, da- yes. Again, you know. Make sure. Thorough. (laughs) But we are today dedicating an entire episode to these flying mammals. Now, this is an interesting topic because bats have a very unique fossil record, which we will discuss in more detail. But because of that, it's going to be a much more modern, heavy episode. We're going to discuss what is bat and how does one bat... (laughs) and what are all the ways that you see things batting? Yes, and how might we have achieved bat? And how might we have achieved bat? And when we get to that point, we're going to focus on the two things that really make bats stand out among mammals, but even among most animals, which is flight and echolocation, because those are two weird abilities, and they've got both of them, which is awesome. But first, some announcements. First and foremost, as has become a pretty common trend, if you go check out our Patreon, and if you sign up on our Patreon at a certain level, we shout your name out here on the podcast to represent the help you give us, because basically our podcast is fully funded by you guys on Patreon. Sure is. So today, we would like to welcome Finley. Hi, Finley. Welcome to the Baskin Coil
0: welcome <laughs> 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 that's the name that's what that's what it is. I now. love it, it asking Coil I it works
1: it. so well. The only other announcement we have some just reminders for some of the new things we have going on at the end of this month we once again will have some bonus news as we've started doing yes for patrons. yes so for patrons, another thing we will do for you other than just shout your name to the listeners is we put together a little bonus news of the the news that slipped through the cracks that we didn't get to do on episodes up until that point the honorable mentions and then of course for anyone who hasn't gone to check it out our store is up and running t-shirts mugs magnets other stuff and we are adding stuff every now and then so check it out if there's something new you can also move our logo to all sorts of stuff all over zazzle so the link will be in our description in our blog posts on and so forth so check that out and Put it on something nifty if you feel we missed an item you wanted to say Common Ascent.
0: And you may have noticed, patrons, that last episode we put up a special director's notes post for basically how we came about the episode, and we'll have another one for this one. And with
1: that, I believe we are done with announcements, which brings us to the news. Every episode, we like to gather up some of the recent paleo-evolutionary cool science newses that we then share with all of you to keep us up to date, to keep you up to date. And to start things off, I'm going to hand it off to my very good friend, David Moscato. That's me. My first bit of news is about uh,
0: dinosaur footprints. Hey, I
1: like both of those things.
0: Really cool dinosaur footprints. This is research by Kyungsoo Kim et al. in Scientific Reports. We will link to an article in Gizmodo by George Dvorsky, which will have some really fantastic pictures of the footprints
1: we're about to discuss. You can absolutely tell that Game of Thrones just came out, because as soon as you said George, my brain went R.R. R. Martin.
0: R.R. Martin. <sighs> R.R. These are footprints that come from the early Cretaceous of Korea, and what makes them unique is that they preserve some of the best scale impressions we've ever seen. It's kind of unreal looking when you look at the pictures. Because, of course, dinosaurs have scales on their feet. Their footsies. This is the Jinju formation in Korea. The tracks belong to an ichnotaxon. Ooh. So, we, as we've discussed before, footprints and traces don't get assigned to a particular species of known animal they get their own species names because it's very difficult to say
1: this footprint was made by this particular dinosaur species it, t- it takes a lot of real clear evidence to be able to for, for people to be willing to attach trackways to a known species so this is a trackway that
0: is known as mini which is tiny lizard feet yeah which belong to a very small two-legged dinosaur. The tracks are only about an inch long, so very small creature. There are four tracks in a trackway preserved along this trail, plus an isolated extra one that's off by itself. They're sitting on sandstone covered by a very thin layer of mudstone, which hints at how they were created. More on that in a second. A few things that are cool about them. They are the oldest known tracks of Mini they are not the first to have skin impressions, but all of the tracks contain skin impressions. And they show the skin impressions, the scale impressions, across the entire foot. So it looks like you're just staring at the the bottom of the foot of this dinosaur.
1: It's They're beautiful. They're beautiful prints.
0: They are exceptionally well made. This is really cool because... Understanding the scale patterns, the skin patterns on ancient creatures, is something we very rarely get a look at. Uh, This is also a new feature that can help to potentially identify this taxon, that now you have not just the shape of the foot, but the actual skin impressions along the foot, which is incredible. The scales that they see, these are preserved in the highest, as, as the authors say in the paper, The highest resolution of detail yet recorded for any dinosaur skin impressions. Any dinosaur skin impressions. That's significant. Anywhere on the body. The tracks preserved. Also, the scales across the feet are less than half a millimeter wide. They're across the whole feet. The skin pattern, this is, I thought was really interesting, is what we see in theropods. Mm Mm-hmm so it supports the identification of these tracks as being theropod dinosaur tracks little you know bird like dinosaurs yeah and there's even because the impressions are so well preserved you can even see the loose skin stretched between the toes oh that's cool which is very very cool uh, and then of course because there are uh, there's a trackway the researchers are able to use the length of the footstep and the size of the footprint to estimate the size of the animal, which they estimate at just under a foot long. So, really tiny little creature. Cute. They calculate that it was walking about five and a half miles per hour,
1: <laughs>
0: which is just an awesome number to know. Yeah. It was just scooting along at just, just above human walking speed. And they point out that this, you know, there are many sauropus trackways In many places. These have been found many times before. Never this ancient, but they've been found. One of the big questions that stands about Minisaurpus is these tiny little trackways, are they a small dinosaur species or are they babies? Yeah. Right? Are they the juveniles of something? And the authors make the point that here's yet another trackway of Minisaurpus and they are always this small and there has not yet been to date... And a large-sized footprint that matches this morphology. So they suggest this is probably a juven- probably not a juvenile of something. It's probably just a tiny species yeah. that is leaving these tracks. That's full-grown
1: at being small.
0: Yes. So, yeah, some really fascinating, well-preserved footprints. Uh, they also talked about the conditions in which the footprints were made, which I thought was really, really cool. Because you've got this sandstone with the mudstone layer above it and the mudstone is what has the tracks in it, that suggests that what was happening was there was a very thin layer of mud on top of the sand or stone beneath it and that the creature stepped in the mud, which they said would have had to have been sticky enough to prevent smearing. Oh, yeah. That it was just the right consistency... That it was muddy, and it preserved the footprints, but sticky enough that it wasn't, like, sloshing around when the creature stepped in it. Yeah, it's gooey. And that probably is because that mud was left there uh, shortly after a rainstorm, which they know because the mudstone also has raindrop impressions in it. What? And indeed, at least one of the prints is over a raindrop mark. So it rained on this mudstone, and then the little dinosaur walked over it. Somebody please draw this little dinosaur on a rainy day right now. (laughs) This is the best thing about, like, uh, Ichnology, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Trackways is that they tell stories in ways that pure skeletal remains usually
1: do not. Yeah. It's a true snapshot. You know, very rarely you will get fossils in snapshots. You things in amber the 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 fighting dinos you would get moments every now and then but that's like ridiculously rare with ichno fossils you are getting literally a glimpse into the moment into a day in the life of that animal
0: yes I, I somewhere i don't remember who wrote this i read this somewhere somebody said a fossil will a body fossil you will usually give you a picture a trace fossil will usually give you a video yeah
1: Exactly. Maybe a GIF is a better. I think a GIF. Yeah, <laughs> a
0: GIF. Yeah, a trace. A trace fossil is a GIF. Yes, it leaves you
1: a GIF. It's that's my favorite thing about them. Is it? It now you can you can apply usually not complex behavior. Like we don't know you know much about what this animal, but we can tell you how big it was and how fast it was moving, which can start to fill in a, a lot. You know, now you can picture it. Was it? cautiously moving or was it darting around like squirrels and like yeah i don't know that it just fills in the blanks in a way that you don't usually get to and i love that well my first bit of news is a little newer in the fact that it is happening right now what there are two species of european crow that according to the research are in the process or have been recently in the process, depending on how you want to look it, of speciating, of splitting into two fully separate species. Intriguing. Yes. So this is research done by Ulrich Neef et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And the article we'll be linking to is on Science Alert by Michelle Starr. So the two crow species we're discussing are in Europe, and they're split between the Western and Eastern areas of Europe. In the west, you have the carrion crow, Corvus coron, which is a black crow. And in the eastern side of Europe, you have the hooded crow, Corvus cornix, which is a gray-colored crow. Now, one little sliver in between their two territories along the, a river in Germany, River Elba, they overlap. Their territories, their Venn diagrams meet. And in that area, they do hybridize. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting and in what drew attention because their hybrids are fertile. Episode 44. It is typically, not always, you know, we, we found my, multiple hybrids that are fertile, but it typically, with two species, when they hybridize, the common expectation is that the hybrid is not viable. It's not fertile or it's not as good for some... For some reason, there's a reason they don't do that, or that it doesn't right. persist what they do. There's a selective pressure against exactly. it. Exactly. Now here, functionally, it's a good crow. So they looked into the situation a bit more. So the researchers did a genetic analysis looking at the two genomes. They went through and analyzed 400 birds... From both zones and the hybrid zone. So all over. And they found that the genetic codes were basically identical except for two major differences detected, both of which dealt with feather color. Surprise, surprise.
0: Okay. Black versus gray.
1: Absolutely. The gray anneals are not found in the west zone, and the black alleles are not found in the eastern zone. So Makes sense. you're missing the alleles to have... The colors that they don't have. Now, looking into this, they think estimates suggest that this diversion probably started from a single species around uh, the time of the last glacial period, so somewhere between 115,000 to 11,000 years ago, where alternating periods of glacial movement and temperature change separated The population split it, and by the time things warmed up and they were able to come back together, they were different enough. They had mutated so that now the colors were different, which evidently was enough because these birds seem to select pretty heavily based on color. Right, right. So when you're
0: choosing your mate, you're just not even thinking about the other colored crow. Absolutely. So
1: the article very classically puts it, in this case, birds of a feather—birds uh, uh, of a feather—literally do flock together. <laughs> <laughs> they are looking at color; that's how they're choosing their mates. Which is why they suspect the fertile, functional hybrids aren't persisting, because they don't look like either. Interesting. So the only difference—the the, the, the tiny
0: difference—that's that set them on their diverging paths. Was a color, was just a little bit of genetic control over color. It was a a, a costume alternate. (laughs) Yes, yeah, the alternate skin. (laughs) That's all it is. That, since all the other genetics are so similar, they can still reproduce together, but they don't. They are socially split. They are behaviorally
1: isolated. And when they do hybridize, then no one else from the other sides pick the hybrid. Right, because they're the wrong color. They're, they're in between. They're not as gray, and they're not as black. They're a, a, a mixture of the colors. So if this continues, eventually we'd suspect that they would stop producing fertile hybrids altogether. So we're kind of in the mid-process. They do have different species names, but are they are the same species all but for the fact that they won't pick each other. It's fascinating that such a tiny change yeah. can set them on that pathway. It's... You would think especially for such closely like proximity that just happenstance of mating eventually they would have just merged back together you know that just just moments of well you're the only mate i could find so and then over time that would have just blended it you know it doesn't seem like it's enough but evidently a little bit can it only takes a little bit to speciate in certain situations
0: This is how you end up with birds and frogs and bugs and stuff that are different species only by virtue of the song they sing. yeah, Or,
1: you know, stuff like that. It's how those numbers can skyrocket, too. It's why there's, like, you know, so many amphibians. It's cool because a lot of them are really, really similar, but they're different enough. Yep. They sing a different song, so they don't attract each other. Very cool.
0: And we get, like we discussed in in episode 44 hybridization allows us to peek into the speciation process yes as it's going on yeah i love it well speaking of new species my next bit of news is about a potential new relative of humans
1: what uh, yeah right I, new I already, species i already have really big family reunions i think i'm 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 good
0: well get one
1: more <laughs> buy a plane ticket Pull from the philippines up another
0: this is research by Florent de Troyes in Nature, and we're going to link to an article in National Geographic by our, our long-standing reference, Michael Greshko, and Maya Wejas. In episode 18, we discussed the diversity of species in the genus Homo, our own genus. Today, we are the only species, but we keep learning more about how many, and just how diverse and widespread our
1: sister species were in the past. It's like adding new additions to D&D and just new race options. These new remains come from a cave in
0: northern Luzon in the Philippines, the island of Luzon. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I didn't actually check. Whoops. (laughs) These remains date to about 67,000 years old, perhaps a bit younger. Originally, all that was known was one foot bone, a third metatarsal, Discovered about a decade ago, but more recently newer excavations found seven teeth, two finger bones, two more toe bones, and part of a femur. Representing at least three different individuals of what appears to be a Homo species that doesn't quite match the others that we know. Cool. It has some features that are similar to most members of the Homo genus like ourselves. It's got some features that are kind of similar to australopithecines. It is a small-sized hominin, similar to Homo floresiensis, the famous, quote, hobbit. I hate calling it the hobbit. (laughs) I don't like that nickname. But the hobbit from Flores in Indonesia. Based on all these different morphological traits, the researchers have named it Homo luzonensis, the human from the island of Luzon.
1: Very cool.
0: Now, not everyone is totally on board with the new species designation. Some authors have pointed out that it'd really be nice to have more than a few little fragments of bone, which is true. They're not wrong. Also, it's young enough that we could theoretically get DNA from it. But, as we discussed in episode 34 about ancient DNA, places that are hot and humid are not great for DNA preservation, and the researchers have tried to get DNA and they just couldn't retrieve any from it. Bomber. A few other interesting things about this. uh, There is evidence in the same area, the same region of later hominin activity as recent as 25,000 years ago. And there's evidence of tools and human activity all the way back to 700,000 years ago on this island. Wow. But what we don't know now is are all three of those different ages of humans the same? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are they related? How many times? Because the, the, the article describes that there's late human activity at 25,000, a bunch of sediment with no fossils whatsoever, and then the layers with this new species.
1: Interesting. So
0: who are all these different humans that we're finding here? Are they all related to each other? The Homo luzonensis fossils were found alongside bones of deer and pigs, one bone of which might show evidence of butchery, Ooh. maybe, by, you know, presumably this species. So there's all sorts of questions to, to, to be asked here, including
1: who were these hominins and were they indeed a different species? That's very cool. I know we mentioned this, you know, briefly when we've discussed human evolution like but, but the concept of there being multiple f- flavors of human uh on earth, especially the fact that during the same time that it was not that single pathway from stooped monkey people to us, but that there were multiple versions of homo on the planet is cool in and of itself. But the fact that we are potentially still finding new ones, that's really kind of the part that drives it home for me is it's like, it's not just that like, there was a couple. It's like, no, we're still finding out that's like th- th- they were just here and there, you know, all around. Yeah. That's, I don't know, that, that's a very different view of human history than you typically hear about. You know, I, for people who study it, I know it's, it's common, but just the general perception, this really opens up that, for a time, I mean, it is now, but for a time, Earth was a was a planet of various humans, of apes. Yeah, before it was just
0: us humans. Well, and that's something that the the authors actually point out that this sort of adds to this picture we have that it wasn't you know a straight line mm-hmm. from early hominins to us. There was this crazy diversity, especially in Asia and Africa. There was all this, what's called mosaic evolution going on, where it's it's not just old features transition to new features, it's that you get these different species with different mixtures Mm -hmm. of old and new features. They also make the point that for a long time, people had sort of assumed that it was just really difficult for early humans to get around to islands. Yeah, yeah. But we keep finding them on islands. So maybe it was easier to disperse maybe our 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 ancient relatives were having an easier time bouncing around to different
1: ecosystems which has always been fascinating how uh, consistently we humans populate islands you know once we have boats it's it's more reasonable but still the fact that there are like major island communities basically everywhere there are major island chains really speaks to the fact that there's There's a benefit to having little isolated homes, I guess. Sure is. Which is very cool. Well, speaking of being around the water, seamless segue, my next bit of news is about seals. And a study that looked at how early seals seem to have fed compared to modern seals. And if this might give us any clues as to what led them to the water. Interesting. So this research is by Sarah Keenly and Annalisa Berta, and it's published in the Journal Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. And we'll be linking to a New York Times article by Lucas Joel. So quick intro, seals, those little chubby pinnipeds that uh, swim around waters around the world, very popularly in colder waters. As far as the record shows, first entered the water a little more than 30 million years ago now we know they evolved from terrestrial carnivorans or carnivoran ancestors and so we know they came from terrestrial animals who were related to your same group that contains bears cats dogs all those all those popular mammals but how and exactly in what happened to make that transition is not as well known So the exact movement from land to water is it's not like the whales where we have a nice croc seal and then seal seal. We don't have that here. Right, right. So looking into it, they were trying to find what are some of the trends we see in early seals? You know, could that give us some information about what kind of lifestyle they were living? That might give us a clue as to what techniques they were using to first enter the water. So they looked at feeding structures. Now today, seals feed in multiple ways. Uh, they actually have a fairly diverse set of hunting mechanics. They are all carnivorous, so they're all hunting sea life. But you have everything from large predators to ones going after fairly small food. The one the probably the, the most exciting example is the leopard seal which it hunts penguins. And they listed that under the biting hunting technique. It has <laughs> large, strong jaws with big, really scary looking teeth.
0: Terrifying. And, like
1: a leopard skill skull is one of the most unnerving skulls I've ever seen just because <laughs> they look so fuzzy and it's just a nightmare inside there. It's like when a dog <laughs> yes. gets up close and opens its mouth. and You're like, Oh yeah, you're scary. Yeah. Oh, oh. maybe <laughs> you sleep on the floor. Uh, when they hunt, they catch a seal, they bite it, and then they shake, they sh- tear it apart until they get to pieces that they can swallow. So like very much taking apart a lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> and that's their biting feeding technique. There are some that use what they call a the suction feeding, which is opening mouth to suck a fish in and grab it and eat it. Yep. So these are the seals that are going after individual fish and just <laughs> shoop, gulping them down. But you also have filter-feeding seals, which I believe we have mentioned before when we've talked about filter-feeding and whale evolution. Because I know there was at least a news article or two that compared them to these seals. Crab-eating seals, which, of course, eat krill, will grab... (laughs) (laughs) Like you do. Yeah. Will grab mouthfuls of water... And then strain the water through gaps in their teeth, which are really cool looking. Just the weirdest, coolest teeth. These little swirly teeth with gaps. And then it catches the krill in their mouth. So they strain it just like filter feeding whales, but just not using hair. They're using teeth. So they have biting, they have suction, they have filtering, feeding all mechanics that we see in modern seals. They took all the modern seals we know of. Images of their skulls going up to 234 specimens of modern seals. Wow. And 15 extinct seals. And they did landmark analysis. This is a very common technique for studying morphology where you take a picture, you put dots on the picture in a computer on the same features for every skull, every whatever you're studying. And then the computer says, hey, these are more like those. And these are more like those. They look for where the dots are line up and they notice yeah. patterns. It's a it's a statistical analysis of shape. Exactly. It's how to teach a computer to read shape. Well, they did that with all the modern seals and they categorized them by biting, suction, filter feeding. And then they did the landmark analysis on the fossil seals to see which feeding strategy they fell out into. And they found that the vast majority of fossil seals, not necessarily surprisingly, were biters. I wasn't aware... <laughs> That the fossil seals were biters. (laughs) So they had yet to evolve the fancy suction and filter feeding techniques. They were just grabbing stuff and tearing it up. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely it does. you'd start with the simplest version. Yeah. So this is very likely, suggests at least, that this is the feeding structure they brought with them into the water from their terrestrial ancestors. So it this isn't like we've cracked open this case, but now we have at least a little glimpse into what early seals were doing and that may give us more of an idea of how they started that adaptation to ocean life. It's pretty easy to imagine that you would have started with
0: something, you know, cuz these are carnivorans, yes. right? Their closest relatives are dogs and weasels and such. So it's easy to imagine a wolf-like or or weasel-like or otter-like creature that bites and shakes and grabs at stuff with its face and carrying that strategy with it into the water and then only later adapting to suck things into their mouths or straining krill, which is just such a weird thing for a carnivore to do.
1: And who named it crab-eating seal? That's... I, what were they even thinking? It's well, it's because I, I, I was watching a documentary, and like, and this crab-eating seal, which does not eat crabs, I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, and this sea lion, which is not a lion. Yep. I like these kinds of studies because even though it wasn't a <gasps> result, it still locks in, you know, what yeah. we can expect to for fossil behavior in early seals.
0: Which is interesting important. Interesting new data.
1: Yeah. And I like landmark analyses. I'm a sucker for those because that's what I did.
0: Speaking of interesting new data, I have a an extra bit of news. <gasps> Harumph! Extra, a little, just a little bit. This is a news update on the mastodon bones purported to be evidence for the by far most ancient human remains in North America.
1: Oh, yeah. We've, we've
0: mentioned these. In episode 8 of this podcast... We mentioned a study by Holin et al. from 2017 that looked at a site from the Ice Age of San Diego called the Ceruti site that had mastodon bones dating to 130,000 years ago that held evidence that they suggested was butchering marks. Yeah. Which was a big deal because the oldest definite human remains in North America are 15,000 years old.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So who was making these butchering marks if, you know, what were there Homo sapiens or some other hominin that was here over 100,000 years earlier than we thought they were before Homo sapiens even left Africa? That's kind of a big deal. Yes. But controversial. In episode 29, we added a little extra update on a response paper, Ferraro et al., 2018, that argued that That paper was mistaken, and they compared the mastodon bones to bones from other sites that had been damaged by construction equipment,
1: Mm -hmm. or
0: that had just been broken, you know, naturally. Yeah,
1: had had
0: taken on damage in other, you know, non-human ways, and they suggested that the breaks on the mastodon bones look more like normal breaks or accidental breaks, not like ancient butchering. The original authors said. But no, we stick to it. And I thought this was interesting. Uh, As a reminder, they said, we know what construction damage looks like on fossils. Yes. We've seen it. Here's an update. Patrick Farrell in uh, the journal Paleo America has published a report that reviews—this is really interesting—reviews the construction plans and photos from the construction that found these fossils— and we'll link to an article by Riley Black in Scientific American. And what this new study found is that the path of the construction equipment lines right up with where the bones, the damaged bones, were found.
1: Ooh.
0: So they're saying hey, this seems to fit in line with the suggestion that these are construction damaged bones and not actually evidence of crazy ancient humans and science marches on.
1: Yeah. It's a a, a riposte and touche. Yes, a counter and a, another counter. It's this this one I I found very interesting cuz we we did something similar at the Gray Fossil site to track where pieces of the elephant had been dragged from when mm-hmm. initially hit by the construction crew. So using this this modern crime scene to interpret the fossils that have been discovered is is a very int- is a very um intriguing way to try to answer th- this mysterious question. It is indeed cool. Well with that bonus piece of bone of but even before we get to the prepared bonus news later on this month yes bonus 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 we can wrap up the news and move on to our main course discussion where we will first start out by talking a little bit about what is a bat and what all does that term encompass? Like what all are bats doing? And we'll get into that after this short jingle. So when it comes to bats, not an animal that we're unfamiliar with. Bats are a pretty commonly known animal. We've done other animals, like sloths. Sloths are one of those where people know of sloths, but they're still kind of weird and off to the side. Yeah, you know? They're rare. They're yeah. Rare. You, most people haven't seen sloths. Bats are so not that. No. <laughs> Bats are everywhere. They're everywhere. They're part of our culture. We talk about them all the time. This is partially just because they are Literally everywhere, and they are super numerous. They are the second most numerous clade of mammals, just behind rodents, with roughly 1,200 described species at max.
0: For comparison, there's only 5,500 or so mammal
1: species total. Yeah. So they're more than a fifth they of mammals. They 20% of <laughs> mammals. <laughs> and they're found worldwide. It's estimated that there could be up to a billion bats worldwide, like individual a- bats, individual bats, <laughs> wow. and they are basically everywhere but the Arctic's and s- sometimes islands. You know, islands they don't always make it to, but that's right. Par for they're the one course. of the few
0: groups of mammals that regularly colonizes islands around the world because, for the same reason, birds do. Yes, when we're
1: looking at bats, it it's kind of easy to be to get into the mindset of well we know bats like a bat is a bat they're a flying mammal they are the only flying mammal and the fourth animal ever to achieve flight which is important and impressive yeah but I don't know they they I feel like it's very easy to get blase about bats you know they they're used in every bit of pop culture imaginable like that's you know, true they if you've ever seen a Batman thing you've seen a bat because they show up at some point. <laughs> Yes,
0: and if you live in this part of the world, yes, uh, once a year, that for about a month,
1: bats take over everything. Yeah, and so it's it's very easy to kind of overlook the bat. I am here today to try to turn that mentality around because oh my gosh, everyone, <laughs> bats—you don't know bats—they are ridiculously diverse in behavior, in size, in techniques of how they survive and some of the ways that they have come about answering the question of survival is so weird like bats are crazy first and foremost they have huge size range when it comes to bats most of them the bats we think of are like mouse sized you know just yeah small but you know mouse sized the largest bats are going to be the flying foxes and some of those can get five to six-foot wingspans, so almost two meters. And the heaviest ones weigh over three pounds. Wow. Which for a bat, that's... Well, lay off on the fruit bat. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you really let yourself go. It's, yeah, cut, slow down. The smallest bat, and this this is already getting into where bats are starting to be the most of what they do, Kitty's hognosed bat, also known as the bumblebee bat, is found in western Thailand and southeast Myanmar and has a wingspan of about six inches. At full, at, when you measure its body length, it's one and a quarter inch. So we're talking 15 centimeter wingspan, three, in, three centimeter bat, and weighs 0.07 ounces or two grams, which is less than a penny. An American penny. I know a lot of other people don't have pennies, but we do.
0: <laughs> that, that These are the kinds of things where you have to say, you've got
1: to be nearing the, the limits. And indeed they are, because arguably they are the world's smallest mammal. There's only one other that challenges them for the title, and it is the Etruscan shrew, which weighs less at 1.8 grams ounces but the bumblebee bat has a smaller skull even than this shrew wow and i
0: just i don't know if you have this in your notes but i just looked it up as you were saying that the bee hummingbird Mm -hmm. which is the smallest bird is the same weight
1: maybe a little less and a little bit longer so like this is a this is getting close to as small as i'm sure non-amphibian Vertebrates, (laughs) vertebrates <laughs> yeah or, yeah or fish or some yeah, weird fish yeah, out
0: there cheaters well what's so crazy about this is and now i don't know how many of our listeners can sympathize with with this experience but if you ever held a bat skull they are like a regular size like a mouse-sized bat is paper thin it's so delicate so to imagine the skeleton of a creature that weighs two grams it just, what are you
1: even made of? Yeah. Are you threatened by when people sneeze near you? Because that's, <laughs> it's If you so... get hit by a beetle while you're yes, flying, do yes. you just fall out of the... <laughs> just implode. <laughs> now, when it comes to bats and their activity, you know, talking about a bit of their behavior, most bats are nocturnal. That's kind of the assumed bat behavior, but not all. There are plenty of diurnal, daytime flying bats typically these are going to be split between your small insect eating bats flying at night and your bigger fruit or other vegetation eating bats during the day we're going to get into those groups more later so don't worry i'm going to break down that but right now we're just focusing on what bats do and the big difference you see between here is that unlike the saying blind is a bat which is never ever true Nope. The ones that fly during the day have very good eyesight and tend to have very different faces. They get the name Flying Fox because they have a very dog-like face. Yeah, they
0: look like puppies. They're adorable.
1: They're adorable little, you know, umbrella puppies. And then the others have much larger ears. They use that famous echolocation sonar to track at night. Now, we'll, we'll discuss that echolocation note later on, like I mentioned. We're going to get into the nitty-gritty of how they fly and how they echolocate, but I'm going to touch on them every now and then. So I don't want it to feel like I'm leaving loose threads. They will get tied up. Or... We'll get to them. They'll kind of get tied up. These are bats. It's... (laughs) We'll see. We can only tie up so many threads. Another thing I found very interesting that I discovered is bats are unusually long-lived. Yeah. For their size. Yes. So some bats can live up to their twenties with one case of one documented case of a brown bat living to 30. Wow. Now that's not ridiculously old, but when you're comparing the size, which interesting fun fact, when you're analyzing animal ages, especially mammal age ranges, you actually have to adjust for size. Uh, You can't just compare one to one because Big animals take longer to grow that big, typically. And metabolisms factor in. There's a a big complicated equation to figure out. Uh, It's the longevity quotient that you can calculate. But basically what it means is if you take the oldest living mammal, the bowhead whale, at 211 years, which, (sighs) gah. Wow. If you adjust for size, most bats... Actually, would be comparatively living four times as long as that whale. That if you scaled the whale down to that size to, to to a bat size or vice versa, the amount of time they're living for the size they are, the bats living a longevity quotient four times bigger than uh, what's calculated yeah. for the whale.
0: So it's it's estimate, right? Our our estimate for the bats would be four times shorter. Yeah, fascinating. It's, Why
1: they they are often living much longer than animals of similar size. The answer for why is hard, hard to pin down because it's weird. But bats are weird. One of the things that tends to sync up with long lives is low general mortality. Basically, if you're dying all the time, you know, like ants, if you're just dying all the time, there's no reason to live a long time. Right. There's there's selective pressure to get everything done real quick. Yeah. It, if you can live to be 50, but 90% of you only live to be 2, then that adaptation to living to be 50 is no longer a useful trait. You're not utilizing right. it. So... You're going to adapt to grow faster, get mature faster, all that. So... Typically, we see long-living animals having lower mortality rates, lower death rates than other animals of similar size. And for bats, the two answers for why this might be is, A, they can fly. And flying sure does get you out of a lot of trouble. Flying helps them avoid predators, helps them stay out of danger, helps them... Reach food that others can't reach, which all helps you to live healthy lives and not die as often. The other one is an interesting one. Many bats hibernate. And hibernation takes you out of the whole game for periods of time, during which you have lower predation and lower risk of accident. So you just kind of skip portions where things could go wrong. You skip... In, in many cases, the most dangerous part of the year. Yeah. What a good strategy. So there's there's suggestions that maybe these behaviors that bats have help them live longer by getting around trouble. In line with long-lived animals, they also don't have a lot of babies, which you wouldn't expect for something small.
0: Yeah, I, I always... You, you imagine like a mouse that just is pumping out tons of babies, a whole big litter, because again you got to get all those babies out because you're a mouse.
1: By you next year, here most of month. those are
0: going to be dead. <laughs> yes, and so might you.
1: Yes. So bats tend to only give birth uh, once a year, and females tend to have just a few, like one to three babies. Interesting. I wonder if that's also an adaptation, uh, part of being a flying animal. Yeah, that's also something that's kind of unique among bats and other flying animals is birds have to make a nest – and they have to leave the babies there, and they have to come back to the nest. Bats have a baby, and then the baby holds on to them like a, like a little orangutan, and then they fly away with their baby, which is another very useful adaptation they have.
0: And that's the other thing I was going to say is mammal. Bats, just because they're mammals, are the only flying animals that carry their babies with Yes. P- both when they're pregnant, right? You have to carry that fetus, but even after you're born... Just hanging on in the belly. carrying the bat around, which is just because they're adapted to climb on things. Yes, they're clingers. So they, can, they, they hang. They can cling on to mom. So, I mean, if you had a litter of, you know, 30 pups, are they pups?
1: Are bats pups? Yes, they are pups.
0: You know, then you how are you going to fly around with your big pregnant your bat belly? Yeah, you can't. You're brood.
1: <laughs> you can't manage <laughs> that way. The swarm. Well, you'd be stuck in the cave, which then brings in all of the Dangers of being isolated to one area with your young. Fascinating. So this also connects, as I talk about what they eat. Bats eat a surprisingly varied amount of foods. Blood. Yes. Yeah, so what you think of bats eating, insects, mm-hmm. is what most of them eat. About 70% of all bats are insectivorous. So that's by far the most common thing they're eating. Almost all of those bats are Nocturnal hunters, and they eat a lot of insects. A single brown bat has been uh, documented eating up to a thousand insects within an hour.
0: This is why we like bats. This is why bats are so <laughs> good.
1: the The a famous big colony of bats in Texas can eat a recorded five hundred thousand pounds of mosquitoes nightly. That's A lot of mosquitoes. That's a lot of mosquitoes.
0: Pounds of mosquitoes. I don't want to encounter one pound of mosquitoes. No. (laughs) Well, what's super cool about bats, too, is that, you know, there are a lot of birds that eat insects, obviously, as well. But a lot of times when birds are eating insects, they are landing and going after, you know, pecking at the insects.
1: A lot of bats are aerial hunters. They are. And they they hunt in such a cool way, everyone. So there's multiple techniques to hunting as well. But one of the coolest when they catch their insects is they actually grab them with their wing because they have their hand as their wing and they scoop it up and bring it into their, their membrane, their, their flaps of skin that make up the wing, specifically one little pouch one between their legs and shove it into their face. This is the Interfemoral membrane between the femurs
0: wow now i a couple things to say here for a bit of anatomy birds and we probably we definitely talked about this in episode six bird wings their front arms their hands are fused into this rod that forms the structure of the wing pterosaurs had one long finger that traced the edge of the wing to the end bats they still have a full hand it's the exact and-
1: same as ours
0: all of their fingers are, su- most of their fingers are super long, and they hold up the membrane. So when you look at a bat, that it's it's their fingers have big webbing between them.
1: So like what Will just said, they
0: can grab stuff. It's there with are some
1: amazing fingers. pictures. I have one that was my desktop for a long time, and it literally the bat is just reaching out and grabbing an insect in mid flight that it's about to shove into its face. Now, typically, these bats are going to have little tiny, sharp, crunchy teeth to bite through the exoskeletons, but that's just 70% of bats. What are the other 30% eating, you ask? (laughs) Well, some of them, we're getting to that one, some of them are actually herbivores. There's a good number of herbivorous bats, both fruit-eating and nectivorous Ones that go after flowers for nectar and pollen, licking up flowers like like a hummingbird. Absolutely, and they tend to have very hummingbird-like traits. They tend to have a, a long face, pointed heads with long tongues to reach into the flower. They're usually very good at hovering and f- slow flight to be able to sit at one flower while hu- it's you know staying in the air. They're usually tropical. That's pretty common with most of your herbivorous bats. They typically to be they tend to be very tropical, and uh, they also act as pollinators because the hair around their neck and face catches a bunch of the pollen. So they, these are often very important pollinators for like deserts and places like that. So they, they often fill in niches in very unique places. They
0: also tend to be diurnal, don't yeah, they? Yeah, the fruit they're, eaters They're especially. going after fruit and flowers. Mm-hmm.
1: Fun fact, the fruit eating bats, which are going to be your flying foxes, which is one big group that. I'll be using that term a lot because the flying foxes are one section of the bats. They tend to be larger, not all of them, but they tend to be large. They have robust teeth for penetrating the fruit, great sense of smell, and since they don't have particularly acute color vision, they actually don't aim toward the very flashy fruits. Very commonly, they go for much duller but mustier smelling and odorous fruits that they can sniff down from long distances and zero in on. There's also a lot of them that just drink the juice of the fruit. They smush it and get all the goose and then spit the pulp out. Huh. Well, yeah, I didn't know that until I was looking this up. A lot of fruit bats are not eating the fruit. They're just drinking them. Fascinating. Yeah. But you also can find adorable videos of them eating bananas. So go do that for yourself. Yes. This is going to be a great blog post. Oh, it's there's so many good videos. <laughs> now, to David's delight, by far the weirdest thing that bats eat is Blood. Blood. Now, these are your true vampires. There are false vampire bats, which are named that purely because us silly humans went, ah, that bat must drink blood. And then later on, we went, no, it doesn't. And they went, oh, it's just a false vampire bat. No, just a bat. Just a bat. And then the name stuck. There are only three true vampire bats. Out of 1,200 species. Tons. And this is something else I didn't realize until I was looking up. These are the only sanguivorous... Bats, which is blood-sucking, blood-eating, uh, which is not actually sucking. We'll get into that. But this also makes them the only fully blood-dieted mammals. Yes,
0: that's true. Which is Well, because
1: we know, yeah, th- obviously there are bugs that do like tons yes. of
0: invertebrates that do it. And there are birds that maybe do
1: it? Yeah.
0: But, yeah, no, like, living your entire life on blood is a
1: real... That's a tricky strategy. And there's also a difference between I drink blood sometimes and I only drink blood. Yes. Like there's a lot of birds that have been seen like licking the wounds of animals for blood, but they also eat other stuff. These bats drink blood and then they have some blood and they follow that up with blood. That's it. (laughs) They don't take anything else and they're completely specialized for it. Now here we have the common vampire, the white winged vampire, and the hairy legged vampire all of which range from Mexico to South America. They're purely an American group of bats. Yes,
0: the New World. We got them over here on our side of the the oceans.
1: They tend to be going after smaller animals. Uh, The white-winged and hairy-legged vampires are mostly bird predators. And the common vampire, which is what you're typically thinking of, that is going after mammals. So that's the one that you always see videos of them going after, like the ankles of cows and stuff like that. The vampires have some crazy features. They have very sharp V-shaped incisors that are self-sharpening. So they're like little razor blades to make a little V-cut in the prey. And then their saliva has an anticoagulant and an anti-clotting, which are slightly different, that keep the blood flowing. Crazy thing I learned is their anti-clotting enzyme in their saliva, they don't work on just any blood. Uh, there are actually some animals that it doesn't work on. Like for instance, uh, while one of the bats it works on cattle, horses, and people, it doesn't work on like sheep and dogs. Weird. Yeah. So this bat cannot just go sucking any blood. It is actually fairly specialized. Wow, that is super specialized. It's really, really bizarre. So once they make their cut, they then lap the blood up. So they are not blood suckers. They are they. No, lap the blood's it. coming to them. Yes. And they're they just, just catching they, it. They yeah. Well, they're cleaning it up. They're tidy
0: and this oh you're bleeding hang on a second let me let me just get that it's gonna get
1: all over the place i'll keep this going you go get help uh where are you going (laughs) they have a little sharp pointed tongue and there are grooves down the side that actually capillary action the blood in the top of the tongue doesn't get blood on it so they're not licking the blood (laughs) they're strawing it up just via physics they also have heat-sensing organs in their nose to see infrared. So little predator bats. And my favorite feature, these bats, they can fly. All bats can fly. There are no flightless bats. Which is a fascinating sentence. Yes. These bats, though, they're very maneuverable because they have to zip in and out of their prey, but they're also good for very long distance to get to their prey. They, though, are one of the few bats that has adapted to a very terrestrial lifestyle. They can fold their wings up and crawl around to sneak up on their prey to get in close. It looks
0: like the way that – and this is topical, but uh, when you see Daenerys' dragons in Game of Thrones walking, it's like that. They fold
1: the wings up and they walk on them. When they fold their wings up, they come in almost perfectly in the body, so they just have two little front arms. Like if you glanced at a vampire bat when it was on the ground, you would not initially know that it had wings. It's like a fat shrew. It's so cool. They are one of the few bats that can actually leap and take off from the ground. So they can do this little push-up jump. And they're the only bat that can gallop that has developed what? running. And considering that most bats can't move around on the ground basically at all, so running was lost in the bat group, presumably, this is a individually evolved gallop from other mammals. <laughs> <laughs> I love them so much. But wow. they're not the only... Tra- terrestrial bat that uh, there are others that we will get to a- after I quickly mention carnivorous bats. There's a ton of different carnivorous bats that eat everything from frogs to small, you know, animals like lizards. There are some that go after other bats. There are the famous fish eating bulldog bats that drag the surface that trawl the surface with rake like claws so on their back cool. feet. And scientists aren't actually positive how they find the fish they think they, they might be able... They can definitely detect water with their echolocation. They think they might even be able to detect ripples on the surface from a fish. And that's what they aim for.
0: That's so cool.
1: But you also have some bats that have been docu- documented eating other bats and bird-eating bats. Yep. Now, this one's really cool because of how they figured it out. They found in the Greater Noctule Bat, the biggest bat in Europe, bird feathers and its dropping, the guano. This was evidence that they were eating birds, but there was a lot of people who said, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe they swallowed a feather as it fell, thinking it was a bug. And also... Fair, Fair point. How in the world could a bat that catches and eats its food on the wing take down a bird? Yeah. And that's it was just kind of one of those... It just... Just... Was, just does this as work? It beggared belief. Well, for this bat, it has an interesting situation where during most of the year, it's eating bugs. But... During autumn and spring, huge flocks of songbirds moved through the area, and they moved through at night, most likely to avoid daytime predators like falcons. To figure out if they were indeed eating some boids, they did blood tests, and they looked for chemicals in the bud during the bird flocks' uh, migrations and during their insectivorous times of years, when we knew they were just eating insects, to see... If the blood matched up with chemical traces of the food, you are what you eat. Right. And sure enough, bug traces during most of the year, bird traces during migration. Very cool. Now, no one's observed this because these birds fly at 700 meters. So these hunts are going way outside of where we can watch them. Wow. So at night. Yep. 700 meters up. Bats eat whatever they want. Now. Very cool. Very varied diets. Now, one of the interesting things with their survival is they actually have very poor temperature control because they have very low fat. So they can't handle really cold temperatures. There are temperate bats, but there are not Arctic bats. If you live in the temperate areas as a bat, you have two options to avoid the killer cold. The one is the classic of hibernating in a cave, but the other is migrating. And there are tons of bats that migrate instead of hibernate. For those that migrate, there's actually some bats, and potentially many bats, this is still something that's being researched, that can detect magnetic fields. And the last thing I want to mention before I quickly go over their taxonomy is we mentioned the terrestrial vampire bats, the ones that run around, but the lesser short-tailed bats in New Zealand are bats that hunt about 30% of the time on the forest floor, scurrying around looking for insects. Why, why even be a bat? It's so fantastic <laughs> watching them scuttle around because they they you can see their little wings perfectly folded up just like the dragons. And they actually have very thick wing membranes, very leathery, That and the wing folds up underneath the membrane, likely to protect it while they're scurrying around the underbrush. That's super cool. They also have reduced some of the finger joints Potentially to bring down the bulk of the wing so that their second wing digit is much smaller. Their thumbs, which on all bats have the one claw, the the one claw, but beware. But these have large talon-like claws on the thumb and the back feet to scurry up trees. (laughs) And they're actually nest in burrows or they roost in burrows and logs. And they'll even dig it out by chewing it away with their teeth. So these are sometimes known as burrowing bats. <laughs> so this is this is a group of bats that is potentially on the way
0: to flightlessness. Yeah. So, and of course it would be New Zealand. Yes, That's of course where it, would it have is. To happen. Of
1: course it is. Now there's tons more I could go over, but let me talk a little bit about where these weird mammals are grouped among mammals. Bats are in the order Chiroptera, which means hand wing. There's roughly 20 families of bats... That contain all of those mini species. And traditionally, what you will usually see listed are two suborders, the Microchiroptera and the Megachiroptera.
0: Also delightfully called
1: microbats and megabats. Which, yeah, great names. <laughs> now, your microbats are quote-unquote the traditional bat. Small, nocturnal, insect-eating. They all echolocate, so they're using sonar to hunt. They are found in tropical temperate ranges all around the world. They are 19 of those 20 families. Five are in a superfamily, which are the Rhinolophidae. And then the rest are in a suborder, another suborder down, called the Yango Chiroptera, which we'll come back to. These are notable from the next group we're going to talk about because when you look at their wings, they have but one claw on the thumb. The next group, the megabats, contain one family, the pteropodidae, and these are your fruit bats, your flying foxes. These are the megabats because many of them are larger, but this group, except for one genus, lack echolocation. Yeah, they don't echolocate. And
0: they're they're largely diurnal, aren't they? Yes,
1: and they're mostly during the day, so they're sight-based, smell-based, smaller ears instead of the big ears of the microbats. And even that one genus that echolocates doesn't do it normally. We'll get into that. Now, that's the old designation you will usually see. And still to this day, with brand new websites, you will still see megabats, microbats, megabats, microbats. That's been around for a long time. Fairly recently, two new suborders, redesignations of these families, has been suggested. And it is the Yango Chiroptera that I mentioned just a second ago, those microbats that contain most of the microbats, as is next to the suborder of the Yntero Chiroptera, which groups the fruit bats and those five other microbats together. Okay, so
0: not just microbats, megabats, but slightly splitting
1: up the microbats. Absolutely. So... The reason for this split is those old groups were based off of morphology and behavior. These have big ears. These don't. These have one claw. The megabats, I forgot to mention this, have two claws, which is something I didn't know until I started doing this research. They have a thumb claw and their first finger has a claw. At the end of the wing? At the end of the wing tip. Now, it's oh. its actually usually not at the very tip of the wing. Believe it or not, the index finger on bats is not the tip of the wing usually. That's usually the middle finger. They have a little short index finger typically. And theirs has a claw. Cool. So it was big ears, small ears, one claw, two claws, echolocation, no echolocation. Now these new groups incorporate genetic data and the fossil record. And it suggests that they're a little more mixed, which is cool. But it also uh, brings up a lot of questions about how these two groups developed and why we see such a mix of features and characteristics. With that, where's Chiroptera in mammals? What are what are bats most similar to? <laughs> Classically, when they were first designated, uh, Carl Linnaeus, who we've discussed, we have first placed bats in a genus uh, Vespertilio, which he put in the order Primates. Weird. Yep. And there's some okay. similarities. There's some yeah, yeah, physical similarities. Uh, people often point out that megabats, those fruit, those uh, flying foxes, have very superficially lemur-like faces.
0: And they have those, those
1: graspy hands. Graspy hands. So, yeah, they're yeah, clinging. They're from. climbing. Well, a few years later, uh, German naturalist Juan Friedrich Bullenbach gave them the order Chiropter, but they were still grouped near primates. So eventually they got put in a super order, Acronota, with tree shrews, colugos, which are a gliding group of mammals, and primates, so they were in this group with these other near primates, yeah, but not, not gliders, quite climbers, clingers, insect eaters, right? And then recent data, updating with the genetics again, has put them in the Laurasiatheria, which includes shrews, both groups of ungulates, whales, penguins, and carnivorans. And according to at least one study, Chiroptera has been grouped as a sister taxon to odd-toed ungulates.
0: So that's your perissodactyls. That's your, your horses, rhinos, yes. and tapirs.
1: So that's the most current, pretty widely accepted designation for the groups of bats and where they fall in mammal family tree. Is this the final answer?
0: Who knows? It sounds like the final answer is Meh. What's fascinating to me about that, all that shifting around, is at no point did you say that they grouped near rodents. Nope. Which would have been my
1: first guess. Yep. If People I didn't know any them, of that detail. They call them flying rats. But nah, they don't. No, they, none of the tests different put them there. And a big part of this is a really, really poor fossil record. So when we try to look at, okay, okay, where did you come from? we bring up almost nothing.
0: Right, that's sort of the next step. It's like, all right, well, it's all confusing here. Let's look
1: at the fossil data. Yeah, we'll go to the source. And then
0: it's crickets.
1: Yep. And to discuss that, we'll dive into the fossils in just a moment. So, finally, we get to some paleontology fossil bats the fossil record for bats is kind of a mixed bag and the fact that in some cases you get like treasure troves every now and then you'll find a, a cave that just has hundreds of bat specimens because an entire colony got trapped or wiped out by a disease or etc bad thing and didn't just sat there in a cave until we came along and found them. So every now and then you get really good representation of a single species. But the issue is that we don't see good representation of all the species that must have existed. And that means we are drastically, we are so blatantly lacking transitional stages of bats. Bats bats are not set. To fossilize very well. No. They are delicate. Very small. Very delicate. And for those who don't live in caves, like forests, they're not in good places to be fossilized. Nope. So caves are a good site to find fossils. Uh, ponds and lakes are a good place to find fossils, which I wanted to point out because we have found bat material at Gray.
0: We have. We have two genera of bats that have been identified at Gray.
1: Now, it's not by common. By
0: jaws and teeth, predominantly. Little frag, you know, fragmentary bits.
1: So we don't have that. The nice when you look up bat fossils, you get all these really pretty, like set in stone, laid out bats. Oh yeah, yeah. That's Archaeopteryx what, style. Yes. which know, happens. The whole body is
0: there. Yep, we got a few of those. But not at gray, but no, like we we
1: uh, humans. <laughs> but they don't often visit ponds and lakes, so that's a rare occurrence, and. Even those in caves give us some good collections. They don't give us a wide variety. Estimates and and analyses of the fossil record of bats indicates that it is only about 12% complete, which suggests that 88% of extinct bats have not left a fossil record. At least not the one that we found. At least not one that we found. But currently, what we have according to our estimates, and what we should expect is 12%. Bat, you might as well be invertebrates. Yeah. Come on now. The reason this becomes really frustrating is that when we first see bats show up, which is about 50 million years ago in the early Eocene, here in North America, in fact, which the fossils seem to suggest is very likely that there was a North American beginning, or at least a Laurasia beginning. So I'll we'll, root for a North American beginning. Yeah, I We think can that's claim cool. that honor. When we first see them show up, they look like bats. Yep. And they appear to be fully flighted, and many of them even show signs of already having echolocation. So there were not bats, and then there were bats.
0: This is one of those, and we've talked about this before, you know, how our hominin fossil record episode 18 our bird fossil record 37 and our whale <laughs> fossil record 41 are great yeah we have these wonderful Just transitions beautiful. even snakes right we talked about snake evolution yes. in episode 3 we've talked about other groups where it's it's not great but we have you know bits and pieces we have little tantalizing clues bats probably have the worst early fossil record of any
1: animal we've discussed in detail it's just not there and even for when we get the bats it's a very muddied picture because i mentioned that some of the earliest ones are north american but once you get a little bit further into eocene there's already early bats found in europe africa and australia so like even just within the eocene they're already fairly global so Even that North American beginning is not really confident.
0: So you can imagine, of course, that now, obviously, bats had an evolutionary history. Absolutely. Like all those other creatures did. But if it happened, you know, it it involved delicate bodied animals in a forest somewhere, achieved flight, then diversified and flew off around the world and went to caves and went to different sites where we could find them. We're missing that first
1: chunk. Exactly. And that first chunk goes back to estimates have the two main suborders, the Yintero chiroptera and the the Yango chiroptera, first diverging about 63 million years ago, with the origin of bats probably being estimated about 64 million years ago at the border of the Cretaceous and the Paleogene somewhere right around there, at least by the end of the Paleocene 56 million years ago. So
0: sometime during the Paleocene epoch, we should have seen the first what would be considered a bad... And this is based on genetic this estimates, is, yeah, I Yeah, the,
1: the molecular clock dating that we talked... With the amount of diversity that we see in those first fossils, we expect to see the first, actual first ones... A little more than 10 million years before it. So we're missing 10 million years of fossil history. And man, evidently a lot happened in that 10 million years. <laughs> so this gap in the fossil record robs ah, us yeah. of the answer to the questions of how did they learn to fly, how did they develop flight? And how did they start using sonar? This is complicated further by that the fact that the earliest some of two of the earliest bat specimens, bat species are Icaronictris index and Oniconicteris finii. Both range right to the, the, the 52 million years ago. Early Eocene. You'll often see Ecaronicterus listed as the earliest bat, and it's pretty bat. It's got wings. It seems to have echolocation like already. It does have some differences. It doesn't have, uh, it has a longer tail and it's not connected to the back legs by a membrane. So it doesn't have that pouch that we talked about that to, to catch insects. It had claws on the first two fingers, like modern fruit bats and a more flexible body than we see. Not very big, five inches long, wingspan of you know 15 inches. So pretty bat-like. Pretty, uh, yeah, that sounds like a standard bat. Yeah. It probably was living like a bat, hanging upside down. Onyconycterous, very similar. But it is hailed as the most primitive of bats. Because it has slightly shorter wings, slightly longer legs, and claws on the tips of all digits, which is awesome.
0: Whoa. So like early some early birds that still yes. have big claws on all
1: the, the digits. Five claws on each wing. Ooh. And... Initial findings seem to suggest no echolocation.
0: Now, a couple of notes on how we know things. So, you mentioned the anatomy of uh, Icaronicterus suggests it slept hanging upside down, which I assume
1: we're looking at the anatomy of the feet. The feet bend the way we would uh, uh, most bat hind limbs actually bend, so that the knees point up when they're bending. They they bend backwards, what we would consider backwards. And that gives them that perfect clinging gait. And then echolocation... Was from looking at the skull morphology to see if they had advanced hearing for hypersonic sounds. Yeah, so we
0: talked in episode 47, when we talked about the evolution of mammalian ancestry, those specialized inner ear bones, when they fossilize, and when the the chambers around them fossilize, you can look at specialized ear structure yes and
1: echolocating animals have very specialized ear structures because if you're making noise you got to be able to hear it so with this onyconictris seems to have unlocked one of the one of the keys aha flight came first and then intriguing because if it's flying echolocation later yeah if it's flying but not echolocating that seems to suggest flight came first
0: Mystery solved.
1: Yay! Of course. And that'll be the end of that until we get later on in the episode. <laughs> now, Stay this, tuned. This bat, they think, had a very scurrying ability with those, those clawed wings that it was probably a very good under limb climber. So they even compared it to like a sloth being able to hang oh, under limbs and that's move around. Cool.
0: Which cool. I like have, to mention it just dropping.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just. <laughs> And then taking off. So this one, like may have Batman, been, yes, exactly. <laughs> I am the knight. And this may be uh, uh, ancestral to the movements that you would have seen in early bat answers, the scrambling underlimb quadrupedals, four-legged movement. Might be ancestral. Oh. Is hmm. one of the suggestions that people have, right, right, have right, kind right. of tugged from this specimen. This one has made a lot. Of news runs. If you look up fossil bat, you'll find at least half a dozen articles oh, yeah. talking about. Well, there's
0: only bats. so many to talk about.
1: Exactly. Now we do find other fossil bats by the middle Eocene. Diversification of bats is kicking off, and many modern families start to show up. We start seeing a uh, uh, fruit bats, the Teropodidae, showing up. You get Archaeopteropus from Italy which might not be a fruit bat, but it has similar features. So that's another thing that's like one of those where it is not always definite which kind of bat you're looking at. But these are showing up by the Oligocene and Miocene even. So we're getting past the Eocene now. We have Propoto from Kenya, which originally was thought to be a primate, and that's how it got its name, but appears to be more closely related to the fruit bats. Modern fruit bats are around during by the Pliocene and onward, so we start seeing recognizable modern lineages by that time. We do have some fossils of the fish-eating bulldog bats, the Noctilonids. And one fossil that's notable to, to mention here is one from the upper Pleistocene uh, and into the Holocene, which is Noctilo leporinus, and bringing it... A little further in to the upper Miocene, we see Noctillo albiventris from Colombia, which has an interesting feature because this is actually a modern species of bulldog bat, and they identified it based on the teeth. They're similar in anatomy and size enough to the modern species that it appears that this 12 and a half million old bat has remained pretty much the same bulldog bat. Interesting. Which is weird. That's not normal for mammals. Even for large mammals, we don't typically expect a a single morphotype or species to last. On average, you'd expect two to four million years. And for smaller species, you'd expect even less time. This is a particularly long-lasting species of bat.
0: Yeah, or at least something very close to a long-lasting
1: uh, yeah. species. So very, very cons- conservative, potentially, morphologically. And then we do have some some kind of all-star fossil bats. One popular one is Vulcanops geniworthiae, which is a cousin to the short-tailed bats I mentioned earlier, those terrestrial burrowing-ish bats. This is another still in New Zealand, and it's about 16 to 19 million years old. But it's about three times the size of your average bat and still seems to be terrestrial. So this was a big lumbering (laughs) walking, (laughs) like a big hefty bat. So that
0: round-hopping New Zealand bat
1: strategy has apparently been around for quite some time. There's benefits to being on the ground even when you can fly. So we do have some interesting fossil bats. We have a, a glimpse through time from when they seem to have been fairly early on to now, but we have big old gaps.
0: What's fascinating about those is that most of them seem to be very similar to their modern
1: counterparts. And that's really one of the big ones. And this, this makes it hard to determine, okay, then well, how did those similar features come about? If all fossil bats apparently can fly, when did they start flying? So let's talk a little bit about bat flight because... There's there's a lot of questions here. There's a lot of cool features. So f- first and foremost, we as we've determined, it seems bats have been flying for 50 million years and pretty much with the same strategy and, and setup. Bats have several features that allow them to fly. The obvious ones is elongating the hand bones and f- the arm bones and spreading a membrane out between those. Their membrane also goes from the the each finger to the back legs, and then for most bats, between the legs to connect to the tail or the other leg, because there are some effectively tailless bats. But in between all the limbs, for the most part, and in between each of the digits, with the thumb being free for clinging on to stuff. Right, so they make this sort of hang glider. It looks like Batman.
0: Like when, when Batman does the... Gliding yes, thing, it and does. it's just a big triangle
1: shape. That's basically what a bat does. And that the bats also have very thinner cortical bone, which is the outer dense surface layer of bone. And this likely protects from the torsional, the twisting stresses of the flapping motion. So they've adjusted the bone. They also have much thinner bones, just much frailer bones, reduced for lightweight. Uh, ability to get off the ground. Once again, if you're flying, you're fighting gravity, less weight, easier to fly. They have reduced some of their bones down to such a ridiculous degree that they're basically not there. We made this comparison last time, but the ulna on their arm is just a little toothpick that is, for the most part, fused. So that's on your forearm. You have two bones there. One of their bones has effectively been evolved down to just a little strut an interesting way that they've developed flight versus our other flying animals birds that we have our other flying vertebrates that we have today is while birds connect their flying muscles to the chest that keel on the chest that breast meat that you get at kfc bats connect most of their flying muscles to the shoulders so they don't have a big deep chest which I, I find very interesting because that also makes sense if you're clinging to stuff, you don't want this big thing sticking out. I don't know if that's the connection, but that's yeah, but it makes sense. very different lifestyle. One of the things I learned while doing this research is that bats actually have small sensitive bumps called Merkel cells on the surface of the wing, and each one has a tiny hair in it that senses airflow to allow them to adjust in real time Oh, because when you have a big, flexible hand for a wing, you have a big, flexible wing, as we mentioned earlier. Well, birds and insects have pretty static wings. Birds can fold it more than an insect can in the middle of flight. But bats look at your hand right now and make it do something weird. A (laughs) bat can do that with its wing, with its wing. Birds and insects
0: often have a lot of passive changes happening yes so insect wings as they'll flap in some cases the wind moving over them will change their shape in ways that helps them catch the air better whereas a bat is doing it actively
1: that's one of the the observations that people studying the wings made is when you have feathers your feathers can separate to let wind through and reduce drag when you're flapping up so that you're not pushing yourself back down. But when bats flap, their skin can fold, but they can also fold their wings past the dragged air. And because of the way their wings bend, they actually do get some lift on the up flap. Oh, cool. Bats are actually more efficient flyers than birds. Now, this is not to say that they're better flyers. They're not going to be able to just outdo every single thing. There are pros and cons to bat wings, but... They use less energy while flying. They took bats, birds, and insects of similar size, so it would be a very small bat, like a hummingbird and a large moth, and compared their flight mechanics and energy usage, and the bat used the least energy. Interesting. Bats are very efficient flyers compared to the classic flyers we think of as birds. They have a lot of abilities that these unique wings give them. One of them is a whole bunch of different flying techniques. So we talked about the different ways of hunting. Bats also have a lot of different ways of getting around in the air. Most bats traditionally are considered to be slow maneuverable flyers. That's something else that they're typically much better at than birds. While birds are very good... You know, at flying at at moderate speeds and relatively straight lines and curves, bats are really good at making a split-second turn and flying through small spaces, because if you're flying in a cave, you have to be good at that. But that's not all bats. Some bats really break away from that. There are some bats that are noticeably fast. Uh, These are usually your insect eaters. Uh, The hawking bats that catch things on the wing, so they're chasing stuff in the air They tend to have long wings with pointed wingtips that give them fast speeds to catch their prey. Like a falcon. Like a falcon, exactly. The fastest of which is the Brazilian free-tailed bat who has been potentially clocked above 100 kilometers per hour. They tracked this by putting airplane tracking devices on some bats and then marking their overland distance and speed they clocked a number of them at 100 kilometers per hour which is 62 miles per hour but the fastest one measured was 160 kilometers per hour this is faster than any other powered flying record for vertebrates which means birds the fastest That's bird insane. it's ridiculous the fastest bird bef- before this was the common swift at 112 kilometers which is 70 miles per hour wow some people have pointed out this could be helped by wind this could be a dive but it's a lot of people in the study point out it's not it wasn't a windy day and it's not likely that a dive would have consisted consistently reached that speed and even still if you take the hundred kilometers that's still equal effectively just shy but that's just up there with the fast birds. so bats are not just slow flyers Some of them can really move when they need to. You also have a bunch who are very good at hovering. We talked about nectar-eating bats hovering at flowers. But you also have gleaning bats who are getting food off a surface. So they hover, look at the ground, listen, and then pounce down on their food. And these tend to have shorter, more rounded wings that are better for maneuverability and moving in tight spaces. You see this also, also with a lot of the animals that are getting heavier food, you know, stouter wings for heavier, uh, uh, wing power, like the fishing bats and the carnivorous bats. Uh, the interesting one I thought was the uh, vampire bats actually have wings that allow for faster flights so that they can hunt around for their prey. They have to go long distance looking for big animals to feed off of. So they need to be able to fly far and fast they're still maneuverable but that's not where their focus is which is i thought was interesting so a lot of different ways to fly very efficient flyers now how did they get to be flyers that's a little trickier the common idea as with many flying animals is that it started with some form of gliding you know that that's often the go to right and that makes it it's sort of the
0: obvious we talked in the in the birds and in the flight episode the trees
1: down absolutely hypothesis that
0: you parachuters to gliders to to
1: flyers yeah and so this is this is very commonly what people look for not everyone agrees that this makes sense a lot of people point out that there's no gliders in close relation to bats like there's not gliding animals within their overall at least where they are right now in the mammal family tree there's also we haven't ever found definite evidence of gliders becoming flyers also true they also kind of point out that there's it's good to be a glider you know you don't have to adjust right there's tons of living gliders that that are super successful they propose that perhaps it was a fluttering the parachuting kind of method but it was a fluttering method of flight evolution based off of when baby bats fall now when the baby bat fell fell it fell onto a pillow (laughs) <laughs> when they fall, there is a – the the researchers observed a video of the bat, baby bats fluttering their wings to control their descent. Interesting. So they suggested, mate, what if ancestral bats would be hanging on a tree or climbing on a cave wall and they'd see food and they'd pounce down at it and control their pounce down by fluttering their wings?
0: So it's basically skipping the gliding stage,
1: going from parachuting to flying. Yeah, you're f- – you're, you're controlled parachuting by flapping. Now, the only issue here is there's no evidence for it. Uh, right. It just is potentially uh, makes uh, a hypothesis that makes sense. Sensible suggestion. But there's no direct evidence. We do see that in Onikonikorus, airfoil analyses of the fossil suggest it would have had a very kind of clumsy, undulating, fluttering flight. So not the the clean flying you see of bats today. But if we go with that somehow bats evolve flight, there is another question that needs to be asked because we have two big groups of bats. And at least traditionally, this was a very common question when it was the megabats and the microbats. They also had different wings. One had two claws. One had one, uh, a single claw. The megabats also... also have a much simpler shoulder joint compared to the complicated shoulder joint of microbats. So two groups all fly, different wings. Also, one echolocates, one doesn't. Did flight evolve once or twice? And one of the things that drove this is in the past, there's actually a lot of uh, uh, potential support or at least people going with the idea that megabats evolved separately from a different group of mammals than microbats. And were often placed with primates because, and this, this even lasted into more recent days, because if you look at the neural similarities, the nerve similarities between megabats and primates, they're fairly close, especially in the visual system. So this kind of leads us to one of three scenarios. Either... There is convergent evolution between visual systems of primates and megabats, that they both came to the same eyesight system separately, and bats evolved flight together. Or there is convergent evolution within flight between megabats and microbats, and the megabats and primates have some sort of connection. Or improved vision was present in the ancestor for all of them and then lost. And microbats. Now, since we've moved them away from primates, a lot of these primate connections go away. But the question of how flight evolved in the group and why we see such differences is still there. We still see really different vision systems, no echolocation, some echolocation, different wings. And when they were in two separate groups, that was nice and clean. But now we've kind of mixed them. So there's some echolocating bats on one side and the rest on the other. So now you have to ask, okay, well then, how did echolocation <laughs> develop, and
0: why is it so weird? So we're seeing that, that phrase I mentioned before, mosaic evolution, that it's not as clean as this side gets these traits, this side gets those
1: traits. There's mixes and matches. Now, the that flight debate that we just had was a fairly old debate. Nowadays, we, we pretty much agree, flight developed once, and bats have adjusted since then in one way or another we don't think that they evolved it separately there's there's enough similarities and genetic and fossil evidence suggest it happened once but just to give you an idea of how hard it was to parse it out just back when we had them in a slightly different section of the mammal tree so let's move on from flight and talk a little bit about echolocation the question of when and how because we have early echolocating and seemingly non-echolocating bats, and we have modern echolocating and non-echolocating bats. Well, when we say echolocating, typically we're talking about one type of echolocation, and that's laryngeal, larynx echolocation, from the throat, from the vocal cords. Bats shout high-pitched noises and then listen for the reflection. Some can use through their nose, and the reason some of them we think have developed this is because once you catch prey, you're blind because you can't shout sounds anymore (laughs) while you're chewing. So some have developed the ability to echolocate by sending sound out through the nose and direct it that way. (laughs) Cool. All of your microbats, all of the small nocturnal insectivorous bats have echolocation. Now even if we move away from microbats, still The groups on either side that are your small nocturnal bats all have echolocation. But they are not the only ones who echolocate. Fruit bats do not have laryngeal echolocation. None of them do. But that doesn't mean none of them echolocate. The genus Rosetus has an echolocation that's created by tongue clicking instead of shouts. And that's how they navigate. That's amazing. But wait, it gets weirder. A less familiar and more recently truly recognized feature is that in many fruit bats and potentially all old world fruit bats, they can do a very rudimentary form of echolocation created by wing clicks. Now, this is not... For insect hunting, this is I'm flying around at night and I need to know where a wall is so I don't run into it. Right. So are they like clapping their wings together? It's, an, it's a click as they flap. It's something in the wing that's clicking. And it didn't, I didn't see if it was them hitting it, but it sounded like it was just a mechanism of the wing that creates enough of a click to tell them what's around them, but they don't know distance. So it's not as clean as the other echolocations. Uh, they could, you know, figure out... That there is a wall there, but they're not going to be able to zero in. It is blank inches away, whilst your laryngeal, your larynx, echolocators can tell some of them which side of a spider web a spider is on. So,
0: <laughs> well, and I I assume that it's you
1: have more control over the sound, and it's also more directed. They can direct the sound in a beam. Right. You aim it when they echolocate. When they're just flying, it's typically. A very right. slow, very regular. I'm mapping out my location. Most bats don't send a second click until the first one's gotten back, so they don't muddy it. And they even have muscles in their ears that can close to outgoing squeaks and open for the incoming sound. Cool. So they're very precise.
0: And very specialized. That's that's some very particular evolution.
1: It's amazing. And when they come in for a kill, they pick up the pitch and pick up the speed to get second-by-second, real-time imaging (laughs) as they come in. This is not a foolproof mechanism. There are actually insects who have evolved to hear. Moths, famously, have evolved to listen for the echolocation and avoid it. But my favorite is some moths have developed special... The article called it tails, but it's their genitals. That they rattle, and it creates a scramble. An auditory scrambling... So it masks them from the echolocation because it messes up the signal. Now, just a quick side note on those interesting moths. There is a bat that has gotten around some of these sneaky prey that are listening in on it. The pallid bat in North America uses very quiet sonar clicks, squeaks to navigate. But when it's time to hunt, it turns the sonar off, hovers above the ground, and listens for the scurrying of the insects. And then it pounces on them. And, or scurries over to them to eat them. So it's not using its sonar directly on no. the prey. So they can't hear it coming. It hears them. <laughs>
0: and they can't scramble the signal. Yes.
1: That's super cool. So lots of variety there. Now, when did it develop? Once again, it's, a less, it's less clear than we liked because remember how Oniconicorus was flying but not echolocating and that gave us a really nice flight came first echolocation yeah, second problem problem solved well one of the ways you can identify laryngeal echolocation is by looking at the stylohyal bone which is part of the hyoid apparatus in the in the, the throat the throat in the first analysis of this bat did not show those features and more recent analysis has come out to go I actually maybe. So it's not hard, yes or no. It's still very... You'll still see articles coming out that it was a non-sonar bat flying, and that's still what a lot of uh, uh, research kind of leans toward, but it's less clean than we thought it was. And this also now brings up the question of, did echolocation evolve once or twice? Mm-hmm. Was it something that one group... Yeah, especially when they were split, megabats and microbats, it was obvious. Microbats developed it, megabats didn't, clean, done. But then we right. split the microbats into both sides, and at now it's either, okay, this group developed it, and some of this group developed it separately, or all bats developed it, and fruit-eating bats lost it. Right. Which is what it looks like happened. Now this is the one piece I can give you some really nice clean (laughs) (laughs) answers to. Analyses of the cochlea which are coiled ear bones used to pick up difference in the pitches of the the returned echoes. They looked at the development of this in bats. Because if you look at modern full grown bats, adult bats the Echolocating bats have large cochlea for bringing in that sound. Fruit eaters have very small ones. Ones that are equivalent in size to non-echolocating other mammals. Right. Normal ears, basically. Normal ears, quote unquote. Uh, lesser ears. I'm going to call them lesser ears. because, uh, sure. Because honestly, I'm jealous. But if you look at the development, if you look at fetal bats, when they're first born echolocating bats and non-echolocating bats both have abnormally large cochlea, oh. much larger than other mammals. But as they grow, while the other mammals and the echolocating bats stay proportionate or in their growth rate, I mean, the non-echolocating bats cochlea grows extremely slowly. In fact, slower than any other mammal. So that by the time they're full-grown, it's now proportionate in size to a normal, a lesser ear.
0: So they all start with the same starting point. that's
1: 65% e- larger cochlea. Yeah, yeah,
0: that echolocating-style cochlea. And then the fruit-eating bats... Lose it over time. Limit development. Yeah, they're, they're
1: just not developing it as, as they would need to to echolocate. So this suggests that ancestrally there was an echolocating ancestor... And then and the fruit it. eaters stopped developing it the same way.
0: Hey, an answer to how a thing evolved in there bats. There you go.
1: And an even oh, cool. weirder add-on to that answer, there's one other group of echolocating mammals. There's a couple others, like small ones that do it mildly, like clicking clicking, small animals. But one other group that's famous for it, and that's whales, which we've talked about. 41. Whale echolocation is a little different. It purely comes out of the nose and is picked up by the lower jaw, while bats are mostly through the throat and through the ears. But the mutation that caused it seems to be identical. The genetic mutation that caused it was in the gene, the Preston gene, which plays a role in uh, de- detecting and the rebounding of echoes. It activates outer hair cells of the ear that allow them to hear high frequencies. When they looked at it, they found that the same mutations had happened in bats and whales separately to achieve this hearing that is likely a huge part of what allows them to echolocate. In fact, to the point that if you were to do a phylogenetic, a a grouping study, based off of that portion of the genetics, whales and bats group together. (laughs) (laughs)
0: that is some insane convergent evolution
1: it's ridiculous they did they took it one step further and they reconstructed predicted what ancestral preston might have looked like and if that's accurate the same 14 amino acid changes happened in both groups to get to the modern form so like multiple numerous changes it's crazy
0: apparently there is some severe selective pressure
1: for that pathway or against other pathways. Which is what uh, has been pointed out. This may suggest that there are only a few ways or maybe only one way to be a high-functioning echolocating mammal. There may not be other options to be that precise. You know, We talked about other echolocators, right. but not I can see through your body like an x-ray with dolphins and I can figure out where a fish is underwater <laughs> like bats so pretty cool
0: now it at this is. point
1: I'm going to stop talking about bats because we've already this is already a long long discussion and there's tons more we could talk about because there's tons of bats but this I think gives you a pretty decent idea of what kind of the state of bats are and, and what we what our understanding overall is for these weird flying mammals
0: just one of the biggest it, it's 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 an interesting case because it is a group of animals that we know a ton about the modern ones and very very little about how they got there yes and just a big old mystery
1: group which makes it hard it means that it shifts a lot if you look through the history of our understanding of bats even the modern ones they were primates they were not primates they evolved separately they've evolved together and we're still learning a lot about them
0: possibly The coolest group of mammals. I love them so much. Very, very cool. Hopefully, everyone has learned a bunch of things. I did.
1: I hope you're... Yeah, I I learned so much researching this one. I, I hope we've made bat lovers out of you all. Before we sign off completely, very quickly here at the end, we would like to answer some patron questions. Yeah. So... Another benefit our patrons get is, at a certain level, you can submit questions to us that we will go through and answer here, right right here on the podcast. And we have, we have two that we will go through today. The first one is from Nils, who asks, What, if anything, do we know about the deep-sea creatures of prehistory? Considering the exotic creatures currently living down there, just imagine the things that must have lurked in the depths of the oceans of past eras? That is a fascinating
0: question. Good question. I did not know the answer to this question, so I did some searching and I asked some friends on the internet. Turns out we actually do know a f- we have a fair bit of fossil record from the deep sea. Now, I'm not talking trenches. Yes. I don't know of any evidence of fossils from trenches. There might be some, but I don't. I don't know of any now uh will's the aquarium guy so before you get to trenches you're in the abyssal zone yes right the ocean floor and then above
1: that there is the bathyal zone yeah and I don't know what defines the bathyal zone I can't I, I don't remember the there's there's it's it's there's depth measurements for for each of the zones and a lot of them uh a lot of them are determined by how much light saturation you know like right once right. you Once you only see blue light, you've entered a new zone. And once you stop seeing light, you've entered a new zone. And so that's a big part of it as well.
0: And now you're down at thousands of meters below the surface. There are fossils that have been found in the abyssal and bathyal zones. There are ichno fossils, trace fossils, of burrows and horizontal tunnels and traces that have been interpreted as being a abyssal invertebrates shifting around on the on the actual sea floor like in on in the marine basins there are uh, some cases with deep sea fish and invertebrates that have been identified as far as i know there's not like you know those real wonky fish yeah that like you see fish the...
1: and viper fish and dragon yeah, fish I, and all those
0: i don't know i don't know much about what we have in terms of the fossil records of those fish but there are fish from ancient deep oceans some of the most fascinating deep sea fossils and there's tons of them out there but I here, here's a few of the fascinating examples there are fossil whale falls oh yeah so a whale fall is when a whale dies and falls to the bottom and gives rise to a little temporary ecosystem we do have fossils of those of whale bodies that were buried in the deep ocean and then you know, lived upon by other creatures. There are fossils. Uh, Our friend Adrian, so Spotlight. When we did Spotlight episode two, we had Adrian Lam on. And if you recall, she studies ancient ocean sediments by looking at forams, foraminifera, microorganisms. She told me that, so forams and other uh, organisms like ostracods, which are tiny crustaceans, are used to measure how deep your ancient waters were because you get different types of, of creatures at different levels. And in the Atlantic, she said, you can get ancient depths down to five to 6, thousand meters. Wow, below the surface. So six kilometers down under the surface based just on the microorganisms. And then there are a few examples. Of microbial fossils being discovered at ancient hydrothermal vents.
1: Which is awesome.
0: There is a famous example that was uh, published around 2007, early 2000s, of 1.4 billion year old vent chimneys with microbe fossils in them. And more recently, there was a study that found what might be... Fossil microbes at 3.7 billion years old. Wow. Which, if true, and ancient microbes are hard to determine, if true, not only is that a super cool deep sea fossil, but that would make it the oldest fossils (laughs) on record. Wow. On the planet, if true. So to answer your question, yeah, we got some.
1: Cool ones.
0: (laughs) There are a few
1: cool fossils for a cool
0: place they yeah very very cool that's a great question nils uh, this, this is a, a general overview answer but yes yes there are <laughs> deep sea
1: creatures a little bit well to to before we wrap up our episode our second question is from, a quick one a quick one very quick one from hans our good friend hans who says question for david Do you actually remember every single episode theme by heart, or do you have some editing? Do you have to do some editing magic to make it appear as you do? Either way, it's pretty awesome stuff. So,
0: what Hans is referring to, I infer, is this running joke that we have developed Mm -hmm. (laughs) where I say the number of an episode that we've talked about a topic in the past. Yep. Which started as just a thing I would do for fun, and then Will started laughing at it. Yep. Uh, and I think it's valuable. I think that it's it's helpful oh, yes. to give people that. It's, information. it's a good
1: reference. You can go back to it easily. I started working it into my notes just so everyone knows. At the beginning of my notes, it says, "Let me get up to the to the top of it." It says, <laughs> "We briefly discussed bats in our evolution of flight episodes." Underline, and then I continue. <laughs> David jumps in here. I so to answer my question, <laughs> I do actually just
0: know all the yes. Episode numbers, yeah, that's just, and there are two main reasons for this. One is that I am insane, <laughs> and I just remember numbers, lists of things. The other is that I do all the stats. Yes, so I'm keeping track of the stats for the episode. So I've looked at our list a bajillion times. Yeah, and he's just, checking them all the,
1: way more often than I am. I have to go back to our our word blog or uh, uh Podbean anytime I need to remember because not up yeah. in here.
0: But I just no, I know. Name an episode, Will.
1: Uh, Let's see. We will go with uh, human evolution. 18. (laughs) Yeah, it's just
0: in there. Uh, So it's not editing magic, except for maybe one or two times where I have just stumbled or forgotten something. There's been a
1: couple of times I've caught him off guard. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's uh, yeah. Sometimes I'm not paying attention. I'm like, I don't know.
1: Well, it's it's great because I'll mention and we usually edit this down so there's not just long periods. But I'll mention something. And then there'll be a moment of silence until david looks up and realizes i'm just staring at
0: him <laughs> yeah, and we talked about antarctica in episode and i go <coughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: oh right yes 11 that was episode 11. do your trick so yeah dance so yes i just that's i just like that that's just how i am that's just how the
1: david do so thank you for your questions yes thanks friends we
0: love answering questions as we've mentioned, we have uh, for our patrons, uh, if you are subscribed at a level where you get the ability to ask questions, we now actually have a form. Yeah, you put it right in there so, and it sends it to us. S- submit your questions. We will answer them on the
1: podcast. But alas, we are at the end of the episode. So thanks for listening, everyone. As usual, if anything in here sparked your interest and you want to hear more about it, send us a request. We've been basing all our episodes recently off of your requests and we have a big long list that's just getting longer. So send us an email, send us a message on social media. All the links will be available. Check out the blog post for more links and pictures. I'm going to put up a ton of links on this one and lots of cool pictures and videos. Check out our Patreon to support us there. And if you'd like to send us questions, check out the shop if you want to get any cool logo brand, uh, logoed items, and keep an ear out for bonus news coming out toward the end of this month, or beginning of next, next month. Well,
0: yeah, I'd say it's around the... Yeah. Yeah, it's there. In a yeah. fortnight, we'll release another episode.
1: As always, every every two weeks. Thanks for sticking with us to talk about bats, everyone.
0: This has been a lot of fun. Oh my god. And I didn't even do a Batman voice. I thought about
1: it. Uh, yeah, no, it's... it's uh, there There's too many to do, and I can only really do the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we leave you with that <laughs> <laughs> goodbye for now everyone see you next time bye thanks
0: for listening to the common descent podcast you can follow us on facebook twitter youtube and check our wordpress blog for pictures and links after each episode huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on patreon the song you're hearing is called on the origin of species by protodome which we found at ocremix.org thanks again for listening we hope you'll join us next time